Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Welcome to Thinking and Drinking 2019. This is the first episode of our second season. It's crazy. Man, it's so hard to put into words how much fanboy admiration I have for Ricky Medlock. I grew up listening to Train Train almost every day at lunchtime, learning his licks. Hell, I even bought a Hamer Standard because that's what he played. I went to Ricky's hotel on the day of the Nashville Skinnerd show and we met in the restaurant that was closed down to do this interview, so you might hear some background music. From Blackfoot to Leonard Skinnerd, writer, singer, frontman, guitar man, friend, I love this guy, Ricky Medlock. All right, all right. Thinking and drinking with Barty A. Got Ricky Medlock in the house. What's happening, brother? Who? Rick, you, Ricky Medlock. Oh, me. You might have heard of yourself. Well, I got some timers right now. You, know? <laughs> you got you know, what? I who the fuck I am, man. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are you doing, my longtime uh, friend? Oh, my yeah. God. Talk about longtime friend. Yeah. My God, man. Think about that one. We met at the Upper Midwest Communications Conclave in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Correct. And I don't even know how long ago that was. That's years? been before I got back with Skinner. Yeah. And that's been Skinner. I've been back with them, what, 23, 20, going up about 24 yeah. years uh, back with them. And I was with them, you know, several years. Before. I've been with Skinner collectively, what, <laughs> over 25 years right. now. But I met you. That has to have been 29, 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Dude, I remember, we were young uh, guys then. Oh, I know it. Our, our hair was dark. And we had more of it. Now, I remember thinking, because my brother and I used to listen to Strikes right. every day at lunch, right after Paul Harvey. Right. We listened to that, and then we yeah, went man. back to work. Yeah. Went back to school. So right. I was sitting, dawned on me that, well, first of all, you were playing down there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And uh, I'd never seen you face-to-face. No, oh. I'd seen you live on the Marauder Tour when Def Leppard opened for you guys at Pershing Auditorium in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I was so mad because you didn't play Rattlesnake Rock and Roll. I was like, what the crap do I have to do? Throw a daggum rattlesnake on stage? <laughs> but I couldn't believe you were sitting down in a bar talking to a bunch of people holding court. And I called my brother and I said, I'm going to introduce myself to Ricky Medlock. What's he going to do? Tell me yeah. to get out of his hair. So I went over and I said, Mr. Medlock? And he went, yeah. I said, I'm Bart Allman with RCA Records. And you stood up and you put a finger in my chest and it just started pushing me across the room going, I want to talk to you. And I thought, holy crap, you're way bigger than I thought you were. <laughs> and I thought, this is it, man. And you could go, no, I want to get back. To, I want to get down to Nashville and start writing. I think you had Al with you. And mm-hmm. who was the young guy that ran your studio for a long time? Oh, yeah, Rob Robinson. Rob Robinson. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was, that was fun, man. That was You cool. know, I remember that because... I think we were in town playing that. Yeah, you were. You we played. were in town playing that, you know. And I, I remember, I remember talking to Al about, you know, getting more involved in going to Nashville back then, and and writing. Yeah. You know, because that's what the the trend was. Everybody was kind of like, 
going to Nashville. Nashville was kind of taking a, not the turn that it's taken now, but that's where everybody wanted to get to, to do the songwriting because songwriting out in LA and New York was kind of up and down. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I met a lot of really good people by making that move, like such as yourself, uh, the late Blue Miller. Yeah. Uh, and I am so sorry to hear of his passing. That really, Dude. that was heartbreaking. Yeah. You know? Um, but himself, and it led me to meet other other people in town. And, you know, was able to end up doing, uh, getting with really good writers like over at Disney and over at Hamstein and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And which led me, you know to some really good songs on my own that I still have uh, that I'm holding on to. And at some point, I would like to be able to Absolutely. get out. You know yeah. what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, man. So, that's cool. But that's a good. that was a good day. That was a great day. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're eating lunch, man. I know you, it's a busy day here. I love eating and talking. <laughs> <laughs> the, the new, the, obviously, you started Blackfoot. Were you in Jacksonville then, or did you start in Michigan? No, we started Blackfoot. Actually, Blackfoot got together out of two bands. Um, Jack and the original, we had a keyboard player at one point. Okay. But Jack was a part of a band called Tangerine. And we, meaning Charlie Gregg and I, had a band called Fresh Garbage. Okay. Named after the Spirit Tune. Right. We were big Spirit fans. And what happened was, Jack and I and Greg were old, and DeWitt, the keyboard player, we were all neighborhood buddies, neighborhood friends, kids. And um, we um, we basically uh, got together because we were playing the same club. Mm-hmm. Um, and just decided we'd put a band together. It was called Hammer at one time. Nice. And then all of a sudden we had to change it, and we finally settled on Blackfoot. And uh, that was a cool thing, man, because all of a sudden it started. At some point we moved to New York, New Jersey area. Right. And set up camp. Well, I got discouraged after a while uh, because of uh, people personally getting involved with our girl manager, lady manager, and... So, I, inadvertently, I mean, I just ended up happening to call Alan Collins. Mm-hmm. And Alan said, do you still play drums? I said, yeah. He said, um, you need to call Ronnie Van Zandt. And I called Ronnie. And Ronnie said, we're getting ready to go into Muscle Shoals and cut our first record. you still play drums? I said, yeah. He said, well, we've always seen you play drums and always liked the way you played. You want to join the band? I said, Bob's leaving us. And we're set to record in two weeks. I went, oh, man. <laughs> so I said, yeah, let's do this. They sent me a plane ticket. I sold off one of my amps, a little bit of my gear, not my guitars. And I made my way to Jacksonville, Florida. They picked me up that afternoon, took me by my mom and dad's. And that's where... Ronnie, you know, started to get enthused by my old man playing the Delta Blues and yeah. 
country stuff, you know, and everything. And uh, that night after I got in, I was sitting in the rehearsal room starting to work up material. That all of a sudden we went to muscle shows and started cutting, including Freebird and Simple Man and I Ain't the One and all that stuff. I played drums on some of the original tracks on that stuff. Well, it rocked on, and, and I did good with the guys, and they liked the way I played. But I felt within myself um, that I wasn't a, a powerful enough drummer for them to take them over the edge, over right. the top. I have only one lung. I got a messed up respiratory system called bronchiectasis, which my air intake to hold that kind of stamina yeah. probably just wasn't up to par. But looking at me on stage nowadays, you'd never, yeah. you know, you go, well, really? <laughs> well, you can do that crap. Yeah. Why couldn't you sit on a pair of drums, you know? But I also <laughs> wanted to go back to playing guitar and and doing vocals and, you know, different things like that. Yeah. So I left Skinner at the time after recording all that stuff with them. Went back to Blackfoot, did what Blackfoot did. Uh, after the plane crash, you know, in 77, the, all the material that we did, the Muscle Shoals collection, came out in 78. Well, here I am up in New Jersey, and we had just cut Strike's record for Atlantic Records at mm-hmm. Next thing I know, I'm sitting on... Leonard Skinner's first and last record just come out. I'm sitting on the pl- triple platinum record. Right. All of a sudden, the Strikes record comes out and goes platinum, and then double. So I'm I'm a young guy that never had success, and I'm sitting on two records that's got five million records out. Yeah. So, and I I was like, what what was this all about? What happened? You know. But it goes to show you how, to me. You're meant to do something. Yeah. That your path is basically cut out for you to do whatever. And I just happened to be at the right place. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And and, and my gift happened to get me in touch with people and, and have it go further. Now, fast forward, you know, all those years, what, 16 years or more, and I happened to go to, agree to go to Atlanta, Georgia, at the end of 95 and see Freebird the movie, uh, the premiere. I remember that, yeah. And I got up and jammed with the guys. And the next thing I know, in March of 96, I get a call from Gary Rossington, and I still got the cassette tape that you used to put in the old oh, voice yeah, recorders voice, yeah. for voicemail. And it was, hey, Gary, uh, hey, Ricky, this is Brother Gary. I'm going to. I want you to learn I Ain't the One uh, Saturday night, That Smell and Freebird, Alan's Parts, and I'm going to come down and audition you, and if you pass the audition, I'll give you a dollar fifty in a Snickers bar and put you back in the band. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, say what? Come again? So he came down, and um, I'm sitting there with my old Firebird. Which, by the way, tonight you'll see me. I'm playing it tonight. Awesome. But I'm sitting there with my old Firebird and a little amp and a CD player 
I put on I Ain't the One. I played through the beginning, right through Alan's lead, played the note, played the lead right along with Alan. And Gary reached over to hit the stop switch, and he goes, you want to do this? I said, absolutely, I want to do this. Yeah. He goes, let's call Johnny. We called Johnny. Johnny said, put Ricky on the phone. He says, man, are you sure you want to do this? Because you've always been a you know, lead, lead singer, singer front yeah. man. Uh, you know, and you're just going to be playing guitar. I said, Johnny, and I've told this story so many times, I love it. But I said, Johnny, my old man Shorty used to tell me, if you can't ride in the back seat of a Cadillac, you'll never get to be the driver. And I said, I'm in the back seat. That's awesome. And that's been uh, almost 25 years ago. And I know you get up and sing and play with the Blackfoot guys. Does that ever make you want to, I mean, and I hope you end up making another record yourself, and I know you're going to make another Blackfoot record. Do you ever miss it enough to go back and try to do the frontman thing again? You want to know what happened with me, Bart? I'll tell you what happened with me. After the original band broke up, I'm out on the road with, you know, other bands, and they were great. Yeah. Great musicians, everything. You're talking Blackfoot? Yeah. Yeah, you always had a great band. And I had some incredibly talented musicians out on the road with me. But I got to the point, Mark, I'd put out two records, and everything was going along and happening good. It wasn't that it wasn't happening. But I got to the point to where I was just burnt out yeah. on being the front guy and, and being the lead singer and trying to make records go and trying to get the record deals and playing the same old, same old, going and doing it. You know what? So when the opportunity arose, I was like my dad. You know, my daddy's shorty. Always think something different. Yeah. Do something different. And I appreciate all those years. I really, and I'm thankful to all the guys that ended up playing with me in those bands, talented absolutely. guys. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But I felt in my heart it was time to move on, you know, and that's what I did. And you were moving on to just a different family that you already knew. It, was, it wasn't like you were jumping into some band of crazies that you had no idea what they were well, doing. Well, that's anymore. correct, because... I'd been with Gary for so long, you know, for and known him for so long. Leon, Billy. Yeah. Even Johnny as a young kid, I knew it. Yeah. That I felt like that I was actually coming back to where I should have been all along. Right. And I've never looked back. So, I know this is a weird question, but... Every time I watch anything, I just watched uh, If You Leave Here Tomorrow on HBO, which is so great. But everybody, you and Gary and Johnny and everybody still says there was just something about Ronnie. What was it? Because, I mean, you're, you're such a charismatic, sorry to interrupt you, but you're such a charismatic performer, great frontman. Johnny does a great job, obviously. But what was it about Ronnie? <coughs> If I can make people understand, my daddy looked at me one day, my granddaddy looked at me one day and he said, Ricky, uh, when you came out of your mother's womb, uh, the, uh, the Almighty gave you an extra special kiss. Well, I think when Ronnie was born, 
the creator gave him an extra special three kisses. <laughs> there was something about that guy. It was a, a spiritual thing that he <clears throat> he had this thing about him that everybody wanted to get next to. Yeah. And he could write songs. He wrote songs in his head. He always he always used to have this famous quote saying, "If it's worth singing, it's not worth writing down." Yeah, I saw that in that movie, and I just thought that was crazy because I can't remember a, a sentence. <laughs> and Bart, I've been with Ronnie when when we would be working up songs and working them and working and working. And watching him sit on the floor, fiddling with his hair, and just sitting there, and we're playing the song over and over and over. And while we were doing that, he was writing the song. And all of a sudden, he would stand up, and he'd go, okay, play it again. And he'd step up to the microphone. There it was. I mean, the guy, and the guy, I, I miss him. There's no doubt in my mind, had Ronnie had survived the band would have went off. He would have got up like Johnny said here recently. He'd have got up, dusted himself off, and went, got back in the game. Um, too many of these very talented people are taken away from us too soon. Yeah. Which leads me to believe. You know, the Almighty sends them here for a limited amount of time to give us a gift that He has bestowed upon them. And then takes them away yeah and it makes you think um i've been given a gift and i give thanks for it every day that i'm able to get up and do what i do but i'm also thankful to the people that that have loved the music have paid their hard-earned money the fans that come out year after year time after time to see this band that music that Ronnie wrote has got under their skin. Oh, dude. And it's really, to be honest with you, it's all about that music. Mm-hmm. That music will be here a lot longer after we're gone, that's yeah, for sure. absolutely. And um, if I leave <laughs> here tomorrow, will you still remember me? Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a part in the show, and I'm not going to tell you because you're going to see it tonight. But there's a part in the show that'll give you the chills, man. We created this. And I've seen grown men weep in the audience when this thing happens. Yeah. And um, I, I think that Ronnie was a man of certain values, certain beliefs. He stood hard on what he felt. Yeah. It all came from his heart. It really did. He was willing to fight for it. And he was willing to fight anybody for it. (laughs) He'd knock you the fuck right out. (laughs) And I never never had that problem with Ronnie. Yeah. I don't know why. Maybe he saw something in me that, that he never needed to challenge me on it. Yeah. He loved my dad, Shorty. Um... In creating Curtis Love, it's pretty well known now that my old man was one of the major inspirations for that song. Right. He dedicated the Nothing Fancy record to my old man. And, 
and even made in the shade. He dedicated that song to him. But uh, Ronnie and Gary and Alan used to come over to my house where I was sitting on the porch there for the documentary. Mm-hmm. And what I was telling is the, is the fact that they used to come over there and my mom would make sandwiches for us and make us eat because we were all skinny as a rail, you know? And, yeah. And Ronnie would always just be right up on my dad watching him play and sing. My, Ronnie loved to hear my old man do a song called Milk Cow Blues. Oh, yeah. And uh, my old man had a style like Mississippi John Hurt. Okay. I was raised in all that stuff. That's, yeah. That was my background. All that old Mississippi Delta country-ish kind of stuff. Uh, my licks on the guitar, <laughs> they might be standard licks to some people, but I always often say a standard lick is all how you play it, that what Amen. makes it not standard. Yeah. Uh, it all came from my old man. I don't think you've ever gotten enough credit for your slide playing either. Mm. I don't think so. Well, you know what? I think that things pass by us that certain talents you feel you never get enough credit for. Yeah. I don't worry about it because if the fans love it. Yeah. Then the fans let you know by their, you know, by their adoration and their applause and you know, I love playing slide. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're doing I Know a Little in the show tonight. And oh, I play cool. The, I play the slide lead in that. Nice. Um, but I kind of do it my style because uh, I put a little bit of Shorty Medlock in it. And he was a great uh, uh, Dobro player, National Steel player, and all that stuff. And I think that's another thing that Ronnie really... Ronnie, Gary, and Alan really love to look at and watch. I was going to say also, like you said, that you know you and Ronnie never had a problem, never got into fisticuffs and such. I would guess that even though you all look like beer drinkers and hellraisers, he could see the actual heart full of respect that you had for Shorty and that style of music and mm-hmm. getting it right, and you weren't afraid to work hard, you weren't afraid to go to the, was it the band house and rehearse for... 20 hours a day you know you got in there and did that that's what that's what you guys oh, yeah. did and I'll tell you something my old man told me which was very important to me looking back on it my old man goes I went to my old man and I said dad I'm thinking about leaving Leonard Skinner and he just looked at me just stared at me and he goes why is that I said well my breathing and stuff and my stamina, you got to keep enough there right through the set for Freebird and all that. And I went, I think somebody is better than me out there somewhere. I said, I'm good. And the guys like how I play, <clears throat> but I think they need somebody of a better standard than me, greater than I am. And he goes, well, I've only got one thing to say to you. Just remember, he goes, those guys are going to do something. He said, I see it in Ronnie, and I see it in Gary, and I see mm-hmm. it in Alan. They got something about them that they're going to do something. 
And if you're not there with them, you got to live with that. Yeah. And I remember saying to him, I can live with it, but I've got a belief in me that I know I'm going to do something. Yeah. And that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and I went to Ronnie and Gary and Alan, and I said, this is what I really feel that I must do. And Ronnie shook my hand. And he respected me for that, yeah. for being straight up. You know what I mean? Yep. And um, I love the guy. I, I mean, I'm so happy that I got to be around him. Oh, man, yeah. And and hang with him and go through some hard times and some struggles and <laughs> all that stuff. You know what I mean? Well, also, I think it was a lot. It was so easy for the fans to welcome you back because it was genuine. Mm-hmm. You were just the hottest guitar guy in the south or whatever the hottest drummer from the west coast or whatever you were already part of their family too and especially being from that southern rock nucleus down there i mean mm-hmm. for a while it was skinner and blackfoot and molly hatchet and grinder switch and that's right and it was like that was the southern rock mecca down there and so i'm sure the fans you were already included in their family might have been some kind of poison in the water <laughs> Could it, was that red algae there yet? <laughs> no, I think it was a lot of Jack Daniels and stuff, you know? Brown algae. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, man. So, um, 2006, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Did that mean the world to all you guys? Did it mean a little to all you guys? Did you go, what the hell ever? Well, why is Madonna in here to all you guys? I look at rock and roll as the word rock, the words rock and roll. And I have to ask myself a lot of times, um, do they really understand, does the Hall of Fame really understand the words rock and roll? I'm with you. Um, I don't really see Madonna being rock and roll and some of the people that they they justify putting in there. Understand something. Um, I wasn't inducted. The band was. Right. Um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the powers that be justified the fact that they didn't believe that I was an original guy. Although really? I was there for several, several years. I'd never heard that. <clears throat> I take offense to that. Well, yeah. Because... I was there when a lot of the material was created. I was there. I got material on records, you know, that was there. Um, I don't under. I, I I feel a lot of times, Bart. I feel a biasness against Southern rock bands at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because absolutely it is on record that the powers that be and Rolling Stone said that they believed that Southern rock was a fluke that it was bar bands that just happened to get lucky. Really? For 50 years? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that sold over, you know, you know, I keep hearing that Skinner sold over 30 million records. Huh? That's be, that, that's when, uh, you know, the RIAA started counting. I would think it'd be more than that. Skinner, I guarantee you, sold probably 70, 80, maybe yeah. 100 million records. But nonetheless, I've sold my share of records. Absolutely. And, um, I'll be real quite honest with you. 
uh, I feel that biasness Absolutely. toward us. Yeah. I have felt it for many years. Uh, and then it just carried over to me. I mean, I would have loved to have been involved and, and went with the band in that, but they felt like that I wasn't worthy enough. So, so be it. You yeah. know what I mean? I think it's amazing. I always look at the Madonnas and the now Rogers from Chic and all those cats as amazingly talented, amazingly successful. Oh, yeah. Maybe not Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's funny, you know, like um, I know the Rock Hall sent Black Sabbath or sent uh, Judas Priest a letter after they right. were on there for one year. Now, this year they're not even on the ballot. And they said, well, don't get your feelings hurt because Black Sabbath was on there for 10 years and still didn't make it in there. And you're going like, how does that make them feel any better, you know? And and it's all that, you know. Seven years for us. Yeah. But I'll tell you what was really interesting. Yeah. And what was cool. Now, this was cooler than any damn thing that happened that night. <clears throat> After Freebird. We played, right? I come down off stage, and this guy comes up to me. Haven't even gotten my guitar off yet. <clears throat> this guy comes up to me, and he goes, there's someone in the audience that wants to shake your hand. And I went, well, who's that? And he goes, you just need to come with me. And you don't know who this guy is? And I don't know who he's, talk- who he's talking about wants to shake my hand. Well, I mean, I'm walking around Ozzy Osbourne and all the guys in Black Sabbath, and I'm walking, and Sting stood up, shook my hand, and everything, you know, congratulations to the band. Dude, I walk up, and this tall guy stands up, and it's Brian May. Wow. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, wow. Yeah. I am standing in front of one of my favorite all-time guitar players, right? He goes, my daughter loves Leonard Skinner and loves the song Freebird. Mm-hmm. He goes, I would like to shake the hand that just played that lead. I went, the hell with that. <laughs> I said, I want to shake the hands that played all that Queen stuff. Yeah. And he started laughing. And we had a great conversation for a short time there. And I met his daughter, you know, and stuff like that. And uh, later on... Um, I got to go hang uh, with Paul Rogers when he was singing with Queen. Okay. I got a hold of Paul. And I went to Vegas to see him. And I went back to see Brian and told him how I always loved those guitars he's played. Well, get this. A friend of mine, Paul Crook. Oh, yeah. Paul. Meatloaf and all that. Phenomenal guitar player, right? He lives in Vegas, right? Mm, Well, he used to. He lives in Jersey now. Okay. But Paul Crook had done... We are the champions that, that, you know, was in Vegas. Mm-hmm. He studied under Brian and became a good friends with Brian and learned to play all that great Queen stuff. Uh, Brian May got a hold of Paul. Paul let him know that we were friends. Brian May gave me one of his guitars. That's pretty awesome. And I've got it right now, man, and I just... It's one of my most treasured possessions. 
Do you find, because as a guitar player, obviously I'm not great, but I do find that what I play is very often dictated by what guitar is in my hand. And if oh, I yeah. picked up a Brian May guitar and had an AC-30, I think I would just automatically head into Queenland. Yeah, you would. Does that affect you that way, too? Big time. Yeah. Well, you know, I just I just did a thing where I ran down my rig a while ago. And funny part all of it is, I've always been a purist. Yeah. Guitar to amp, and I don't like too many interruptions in between that right. signal. Your favorite effect is that chord? I'm a guy that loves a tube damp. Yep. Got to be 100 watts. Yep. Master volume or no? Nope. Nope. Of course, you're... <laughs> Yank it and crank it. You know what I mean? You're playing bigger places than most of us are. I've always been a guy that liked the, likes the 412 cabinets. I like yep. the EL34s in the tube sockets. Right. That heat up to no end and you can't touch them, you know? They're about <laughs> ready to explode. But that's where that sweetness and that tone come yeah. from. And it's funny because when I strap on whatever, whatever guitar... I automatically think this leads me to play, just like you said, whatever song. Yeah. Like, I can put my old Firebird in my hand, I automatically want to play Crossroads. Right. Yep. Because I saw Clapton play Crossroads exactly. with reverse Firebird. Yeah. Um, it, it's a funny thing with guitars. They're mistresses. Yeah. That sometimes won't argue with you, but if they do argue with you, they win. They get their way <laughs> every time. Uh-huh. Um, and the funny thing is, you remember my old Black Beauty? Oh, dude! Right, that was in the flood. She's not on the road right now, but I had one. I had Gibson custom make me one that was like my old one. And put my wife's name on it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, so now I got two females in one guitar arguing with me all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they get their way. And <laughs> thank, I'm, I'm thankful that the one female is a talented singer and, you know, with Kid Rock. And, Absolutely. You know, <clears throat> and I get to hear her all over the house all the time. Yeah. Um. But my guitars, the old Firebird that I was telling you about, the old Firebird, I finally got that thing authenticated, and I didn't even know this. But that old Firebird of mine that you'll see me play tonight actually is a prototype. I think he told me that. Mm-hmm. Cause you, you Didn't you take it to RS up in Kentucky to kind of repair That's some right. of the stuff after oh, the yeah. flood? Well, listen, yeah. Uh-huh. Well... I had to send my old Explorer and my old Firebird up there to RS Guitar Works. Yeah. They resurrected them because they sat in water over there at Soundcheck. It was heartbreaking to me because I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to lose two of my prized possessions. Absolutely. I didn't. They resurrected them. And lo and behold, I'll be damned, I'm playing both of them on stage now. That's crazy. So... For me, for me being a collector and stuff like that, I take pride in 
uh, I take pride in my rig, my guitars. I'm a purist. I, it's got to be a certain way. Don't use a lot of gimmick pedals and stuff like that. I do use a wah-wah when it's necessary. I use a little bit of chorusing to spread mm-hmm. to spread the signal, but nothing that you can hear. Right. Okay? You only notice it when it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just... Um, but the guitar that you pick up, like you said, you will find that you'll take on a certain character when you pick it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's a weird deal. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I think you're playing Wizard Amps now, correct? Oh, I am. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that fateful time I saw you in Lincoln, Nebraska. You had three stacks, six cabs. I don't know what your guitar tech's name was, <laughs> but you kept ho- looking over and hollering at him. And giving him the thumbs up, and I'm like, you look like you're mad, but you're telling him good job or whatever. And all of a sudden, he ran out, and he just ran his finger under all of the knobs and just dimed everything. And that's the loudest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Because that stage was about four feet tall, five feet tall, so those bottom three 412s were just blowing my face off. It was awesome. (laughs) You know, (laughs) live it live and learn I guess I should say (laughs) but you know what man Charlie and I used to kind of an interesting deal we used to work on each individual's tone to make it sound like a wall right yeah when I took a lead the wall was still there when he took a lead the wall was still there and yet you still had your own tone exactly and I used to set a lot of times I would I would uh, I would go for vintage speakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the vintageness, which back then wasn't vintage yet, right? <laughs> but I used to go for the, the the vintage tone and the vintage makeup. You know what I mean? Personally, for me, I still do that. Yeah. Just can't do it in the three guitar attack, right? All that amp, all those amps. You know yeah. what I mean? But Charlie and I used to work on that and and really rely on that vintage plexi, Marshall plexi stuff. Now, with the Wizards, thank God I had Rick St. Pierre, and I had met him uh, through a friend of mine, uh, Damon Johnson. Mm -hmm. I met him through Damon. And uh, when the flood happened, my old touring Marshalls, they sat underwater for three days, mm. tore them up, no resurrecting. And I've had those things. They were a 71 and a 72. And I had had those things probably since 73, 74, and they were my old Turing Marshalls. Man. And I lost them. Well, I went to Marshall, and I called Marshall, and Marshall gave me some cock and mamie bullshit story that you know, that they were going more toward the new guitar players of, the, of today and a lot less from us, you know, classic guys, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, hell, man, I helped make this company. And I told the yeah. guy, I said, as a matter of fact, Jim Marshall gave me one of the very first JCM 800s to roll off through the assembly line. Really? You know? I said, all right, that's all right. Yeah. You know, take it down, Marshall, stick it up your butt. You know, I don't care. <laughs> you know? So, 
uh, I call this guy Rick St. Pierre. Got his number from Damon. He was getting ready to go back on the road with ACDC on their tour before last. Okay. He was working for them. And he had started this company, Wizard. They were all the exact yeah. schematics of the old 67 Plexis. Well, I know tone-wise, tone they're perfect. PL-34s, same transformers. And they're brand new and indestructible. Yes. Yeah. Might cost you a little bit more dinero. Yeah, they're not cheap. But that's what I got on stage Dude. right now. And they, when you hear it, they are killer. Yeah. I and uh, Rick St. Pierre was godsend to me, you know? Yeah. So, staying with guitar stuff, I mean, you're an Explorer and a Les Paul guy from way back. Can I see a picture you snapped the wang bar off your Explorer the other night? <laughs> I just remember seeing this picture of you holding it up like you I'm holding that, this, huh? Yeah, going like The guy the? from Rig Rundown today asked me that. <laughs> <Did> he? <laughs> he said he seen me at a show, snapped a vibrato bar on him. <laughs> well, I I think, and obviously I'm I mean, a, I'm a little over the top. Well, that's all right. A little bit of a nutcase like I told the guy. The wife will verify that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, hey, I get... I get to the point in the show, man, where my adrenaline is like, you know, I'm like a 17-year-old. Yeah. I feel the emotion of it. And, and, and all of a sudden, I remember that night. Snapped it off. I looked at it like that. And I <laughs> throwed it back over there like it hit uh, my, my guitar tech in the head with it. But I laughed about it, and there, there you go. You know what I mean? Dude, I, uh, I was just thinking about the sea of crap that Gibson Guitars is in right now and in my head I think of a picture like I can even go back to you with that denim duster on and that flat brim Stetson and that and you with that Explorer is as iconic to me as Eddie Van Halen and Frankenstein or Brian May and the Red Special and now we see that Henry is leaving Gibson between, depending on who you believe, a hundred million and five hundred million in debt, and you go, "What is going on with this company, man?" I mean, nobody. I I think they're fantastic guitars. I only have a couple, but I I don't know too many guys that need a ten thousand dollar brand new Les Paul. With no disrespect to Henry, absolutely. One of the biggest things that I think were a lot of mistake and I don't know the inner workings of that company yeah and I don't process you know I don't process you know process to know about the inner workings of it I understand they just hired a new from Levi's you know from Levi Strauss a new CEO I loved Rick Gimbar Uh, Rick Gimbar to me was a really heartfelt guy heartfelt to musicians to the wants and the needs of the player. Mm -hmm. We went out there night after night in front of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of fans. They saw what we played. Yeah. Other other great players that's out went out and did the same thing. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how you could tell a guy like Rick Gimbar, your services are no longer needed. Yeah. 
that was heartbreaking to me and to Gary. Um, I don't know why. I don't know what that was all about. I would really like to know one day. Rick Gimbar, he won't talk about it. We've spoken with him, and he said, hey, that's the way it went down. Hmm. Um, hmm. I will go on record and say I think that is bullshit. And uh, I was very disappointed in hearing that. Yeah. Um, well, he got Henry got rid of a lot of really good guys. Yes. Yes. <laughs> a lot of good guys. And I, like Ernie King was there for many years, you know, as well as yep. tons of other guys. You know what I mean? I don't understand all that stuff. Mm. But like I said, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a corporate guy on the inside of that sure. company. So I, I don't know. You know what I mean? But a 20-year-long relationship with you and Gary's got to be worth something. Oh, listen. <laughs> you I mean, to a guitar we didn't manufacturer. Even, you know what? Mm. It would be nice for somebody to call up people like us and say, hey, you know, what do you think about this guy? Yeah. Instead of all of a sudden one day, our guy's gone. We don't even know who to go yeah. to. Dude, I know country acts that went on the road and like had a J45 and the top started separating and they would call back the next day and the person that had handed him that guitar wasn't working there anymore and there would be like no artist relations guy or girl there. Like, well, what do I do? See, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. What do I do? What do you do? I don't want to play a Taylor. They're great guitars, uh-huh. but I'm a Gibson guy. This uh-huh. is what I want to play. Yep. Uh, well, man, completely changing subjects here. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about Rumble, the Indians that rocked the world? <laughs> I think I've rocked a little bit of the world. Is this a, a documentary, or I mean, I've seen the well, trailers to it. And stuff. Here's the deal, my friend Stevie Salas. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Stevie, as you well know, great guitar player. Yep. Um, played with a lot of people. Uh, Rod Stewart. Funkadelics. Solo uh, records? Yeah. Well, I got involved with, uh, I've known Stevie for a while. He's a native. And um, Stevie and I connected. And I got involved with a thing called Dreamcatchers uh, Society. And uh, Stevie was telling me about this film he was putting together. Rumble. Wanted to know if I wanted to take place and be a part of it. I said, absolutely. And uh, next thing I know, he's got me on film interviewing, talking about Jesse Ed Davis. Mm-hmm. Well, my old drummer, Jackson Spires, and that was in Blackfoot. Yeah. We used to listen to Jesse Ed Davis. Okay. We loved Jesse. And the next thing I know, um, he's got the film out. I'm going to film festivals. That's cool. And uh, watching that thing gain popularity, uh, as did you know my my friend Taboo mm-hmm. from the Black Eyed Peas and Martin Sinsmeyer and a, a whole bunch of people like that. And uh, you know what, man, I was happy to see Stevie get this thing done. I thought it was well done, and it tells people just how involved natives were. Yeah. You know, in yeah. music, people don't know that, right? And that needed that needed to be bought, brought to the forefront, yeah. Because a lot of your rhythms in blues and 
stuff like that was all native driven. Yeah. So it goes before the old Delta Blues guys. You know what I mean? I think you can hear the Muscle Shoals stuff. Big time. I think, yeah. Big time. So my hat's off to Stevie Salas, man, and the people who did the movie. They, I thought they did a great job, and I was just really happy to be a part of it. That's cool, man. Well, if if you can talk about, I mean, what happens to bring apart a farewell tour? I mean, and I know, I, I, and if you can't talk about it, tell no. me you can't talk about it. That's fine. Because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, of course. Here's what happened. Everybody pretty well knows in the last 15 years, Gary has had some really serious bouts with his heart. Yeah. Back about 15 years ago, he had a quintuple bypass. Mm-hmm. A couple of strokes. Fortunately, they were small strokes that didn't take him out of the game. Yeah. Um, he'd had countless stints put in. We felt like at the end of last year, for Gary's sake. I mean, you're talking about a band that would go out every year and do 80, 100, 110 shows a year. Yeah. And a lot of travel. That is, that's hard on you. Yeah. <clears throat> Even for guys like, such as me that tries to keep up with, you know, working out and doing, you know, trying to take care of myself. But it was hard on Gary. And we really felt that it really wasn't worth Losing him. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. we announced the farewell tour, and what we did was we were only going to go out and just do weekends, which is what we've been doing. Right. Uh, Gary and, and Dale <coughs> and Johnny and the rest of the band is able to stay at home. And, you know, Gary's got daughters and grandkids now, and uh, Johnny, um, I hate to say, and it's a sadness, too, man. Johnny lost his oldest daughter this year to cancer. Yeah. 35 years old, Lindsay. Man. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, also, um, you know, he, he's got a couple of grandkids now, and, and everybody wants to be home to, you know, to spend time with, Absolutely. you know, the families. Yeah. I've got my lady, you know, I've got a grown 26-year-old daughter now, soon be 27. Um, you get to that point in your life, you know. Now, me, I can roll with whatever. You know, I can roll with the 80 to 100, 110 shows. But for some people, they just can't do it. Yeah. You Everybody I mean? ages it different. Well, yeah. Levels. I mean, you know, and I've often heard, you know, eh, touring is for the young guys, you know, and Oh, really? Well, let me tell you something, young guys. You get out there, and I want to see you do 100 shows a year with all the travel. Yeah. You might think different. So (laughs) that is one of the reasons why we announced Last of the Street Survivors Farewell Tour. Uh, We're not going to go away. It's not one of these things where at the end of this year we're done. We still got to go to other countries around the world. Sure. We got to finish up what we didn't finish up here in the States. Probably going to take us into 2020. 
Then after that, we're going to do some new new recordings and stuff like that. And probably <laughs> every once in a while, maybe play some special events or play a residency in Vegas or Dude. something like that. You that know what I mean? That would be awesome. So we're not going away, going away. We're just not going to do the extensive... 80 to 100 shows a year like we've been doing. Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick always says, nobody pays us to play, they pay us to travel. And until you've been on the road as much as we all have, you really don't understand that. No, no. When you, nowadays especially, fighting... (laughs) My God, how do I say this? Fighting (laughs) airline travel... Oh, man. With all this stuff, man, you got cancellations and late and this and that and the other. Um, look, we traveled Delta an awful lot. But I was standing there one day and, and the plane was late and they didn't know when it was going to take off. And I'm looking at my watch going, oh, my God, I got to get to my next city. The band's going to. So I started looking at the letters in Delta. <laughs> And being an old songwriter that I am, I went, delivering everyone late through Atlanta. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, unfortunately, I said that to an airline flight attendant, and she didn't find the humor. <laughs> she in it, took a bit uh, of offense hey, to Hey, whatever. It. You know what I mean? But, you know, the, the deal about it is it, it just it gets to be to the point to where that kind of travel, when you travel like that and you're playing shows and you're doing buses and you're doing this and that, Rick Nielsen's right. Yeah. You're paid to travel, not to play. Playing's the good part of the day. Yes. Yeah. But you know what's funny? I mean, and, and everybody laughs at me when I say this, but it's the God's honest truth. When you're taken away from home for so long. Oh, dude. Your home's... If you got one or two homes, your homes go to go to hell. When you get home, you get less rest at home than you do on the road. Yep, absolutely. Because once I get to the hotel, I can just, you know, park, go work out, do whatever, park up in the bed, and I'm like, hey. There's no honeydew list There's no in a hotel room. There's no honeydew list in a hotel room. <laughs> there's no honeydew list on the bus. There's no, you know what I mean, or on the stage or what. So I do. I get more rest on the road, but still doesn't take away from the fact that's how you roll and everybody's not made to roll the same way absolutely you know absolutely well dude i i know we talked about it a bit but what's next and i know you've got years to think about i mean you obviously you have black fifth you write and produce and all that and, and sing on some of that stuff my buddy Mark. Jason Charles Miller and I were talking the other day yep. about you I know you did a song on his new record well it's, uh, it's funny I've, I'm in touch with a lot of different people a um, couple of things on the horizon for me um, I just signed with uh, William Shatner's production company Shatner Universe to develop a show. It's going to be a major announcement coming up. Um, and you'll you'll see what it's called. But um, it'll be an entertainment reality show. Hopefully we'll get a good uh, one of the new networks, you know, that we're yeah. pitching it to. I'm going out for the pitch and all that. So that'll keep me busy for 
hopefully a good long time. Yeah. Um, Stacy and I, Stacy Michelle, that's with Kid Rock. We've been wanting to write a bunch of stuff and, and do kind of like an all-star band. Well, in conjunction with the show, might al- allow us mm-hmm. <clears throat> to be go- to go further with these plans. And you know, I'd like for her and I to do records together, put out one song about every three months until we get enough songs, and then put a collection together. Then I'd like to go out and play live with with her. Now we've done what. What's really interesting is back when we were doing the Skinner cruises. Mm-hmm. I did a, a thing called Ricky Medlock and Friends Jam Night. Right. Had all these people to show up. We picked all these cover songs to do, including some Blackfoot stuff. And um, she got up and she played with She plays a hell of a guitar. Really? Well, dude. That's awesome. One of the guys that she toured with was Joe Walsh. That's when they right. did the James King, she went out. We've got pictures of her standing up there on the stage with Joe playing guitar. That's awesome. She used to do this thing with Waddy Wattel. Oh, yeah. In L.A. called The Joint. And she was the second guitar player to Waddy at The Joint on Monday night. Yes. Oh, she's a badass. In more ways than one, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) And for this old guy, man, she's 20 years my younger. That takes a lot of going, you know what I mean? So... um, but she's really, really. She, you know what it is. She don't. She don't really realize just how talented she yeah. is. She doesn't. And that's kind of a good thing in a way because yeah. you know. Uh, but she and I've been together over ten years now. It's been great. And uh, I, that's one of the things. Another thing that we want to get, you know, get accomplished in our life. For right now, and then along with the Skinner stuff, whatever happens more with that and everything. Yeah. There's my life. Yep. You know, set in front of me. Now, the only thing is that I bitch about all the time not being able to fish more. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was going to bring that well, up. Well, it's funny because these guys go, hey, man, after you retire, right. <laughs> you can fish more. You can only do so much fishing. Yeah. You know what I mean? But my brother and I that lives down in Gainesville, my brother Jerry and I, uh, we love to fish together. As a matter of fact, we got some trips planned right now coming up. Um, I love the art of fishing. Yeah, uh, it intrigues me. You know, I've never been a hunter. Yeah, um, I've always been a fisherman. Um, you know, we just had this thing. I know that you, some people might be familiar with, that comes on Access TV. It's called the Big Interview with Dan Rather. Yep. I saw that. We just had ours. Yeah. Well, I've had people come up and shake my hand since going, man, we really appreciate you sticking up for guns and, you know, yep. talking about the gun control. And that. Yeah, I'm going to talk about it because yeah. I got a load of weapons in my house. Yeah. And if you are if you come crashing my door in at 3.30 in the morning, you ain't there to have coffee with me in a conversation. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you, you're there to... Probably kill me and take what I got and mess hurt my hurt family, family? And, you know yeah. whatever. Well, I ain't gonna let that happen. Absolutely. Um, I, I I got a lot to do and a long way to go. Knock on wood. Hopefully, the Almighty, the the Creator, will let me be here for a lot longer. I want to see my daughter 
You know, she'll be 27 into this month, <clears throat> getting ready to graduate college. And um, she's turned out to be a beautiful woman. And um, chip off the old block here. Indeed. She's pretty, I shouldn't say pretty strong-headed. She's very strong-headed. <laughs> she's like her old man. I think that's what her mama hates the worst than me, you know. <laughs> but whatever. Uh, I'd like to be around for quite a few more years to see my daughter be able to get set in her life to where she uh, is going forward and, and with a man of her choice, maybe, I don't know, you know, but uh, that would be very, that's very important to me yeah. that to take care of my, my wife and, and uh, my daughter now and to make sure that they are taken care of and like everybody that hopes that I might will my explorer and my firebird to you, you're going to have to fight them over it, you know. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Well, dude, man, thank you so much. Mark, thank you. you've been a great friend to me. You too, I, man. You I know, really man, appreciate I, I, I appreciate you. And we keep threatening, we keep threatening to get together and write, and we got to make that happen. I know it. I think it'd be great to see me, you, and Stacy get in a room and, Dude, you know, and and try it. You know what I mean? Absolutely, I do. And I, we awesome. now see we have. I love this man, and and it's nobody expects this of me and her. See, and we try to keep it under wraps and the whole bit. But of course, you know how things leak out and stuff like that. But. We got a little lake cottage over here right below Memphis, you know. Oh, yeah, It's our yeah. little hideaway. And we ain't but three hours from you. Yeah. So we should try to make that happen. Me and Dude. her can drive over and, you know, <clears throat> go to your place and absolutely sit with some guitars in our hand and see what we can come up with. I think that would be, uh, I think that'd be killer. It'd be a blast. You got it. Awesome. I love you, buddy. Love you too, brother. Thank you, Thank man. you much, man. <laughs>